Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. I will also be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. And you can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Genesis 2:18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present, him, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of this body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of God. Good morning. It's great to see everybody here on a holiday weekend. Um, if you're new or visiting, uh, we just started a series on what it means to cultivate your marriage. It's very important whether you're single or if you're married. Um, very important for us today because scholars will tell you that our modern generations, they don't know how to put in the work that you need to build something. That's what they're saying. But, but here's, here's the thing. If you, if you don't do that, if you don't put in the work, if you just leave your marriage alone, for instance, uh, and even if nothing bad happens, over time there's going to be rust. There's going to be decay. Selfishness is going to take over on the inside, and loneliness and alienation and isolation will take over on the outside. So you need to remember the purpose of marriage. You need to apply the purpose of marriage. That's what we're going to talk about today. There are four things we're going to look at. The purpose of marriage, the practice of it, what poisons it, and uh, the power for it. The purpose, the practice, what poisons it, 
and the power four. We finally figured out how to do the alliteration thing there, right? Four Ps. One, uh, the first point, the purpose of marriage. If you're here last week, whether you are single, whether you are married, we said that marriage is not the end. It's not the end goal. Friendship, companionship, partnership, oneness, that's the end goal. And marriage is the most intense, the most beautiful, the most lasting friendship that you will ever experience. But if marriage is not the end goal, but rather a sign, a pointer, what's the end goal? What's the destination? And so the Apostle Paul, he goes on to this beautiful discourse in Ephesians chapter 5, and we looked at this text last week, but in verse 31, he refers all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. That's the first book of the Bible. He goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but, but since we're at Genesis, uh, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to go a little bit further back. Why did God create us? Why did he create man in the first place? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. God said, and we talked about this last week, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And, and that's the purpose. God created us. God created his people to reflect, to imitate his communicable attributes. What is that? What is a communicable attribute? A communicable attribute is an attribute of God that can be acquired, that can be transferred to his people, like love or kindness. We have some semblance of love or kindness that we can practice, wisdom and joy. We can understand that. We can imitate that. We can take on these attributes how? Here's a phrase. You will become what you behold. In other words, to the, to the degree that you admire somebody, to the degree that you love someone, to the degree that you love that thing, you're going to become like them. You're going to reflect their image. You're going to become an image bearer, and that's the purpose. God says, let us make man in our image. They're going to be like us. They're going to be able to love. They're going to be able to demonstrate kindness and wisdom and joy. They're going to reflect our perfect beauty, our perfect glory, our brilliance and our radiance. This is the Trinity. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God, he doesn't just have relationships. He doesn't, he's not just in relationship by nature. God is the most intimate relationship. So intimate, they are one. There's a oneness, a deep personal oneness. Each of the members of the Trinity, each of the persons of the Trinity, they are different. They have unique roles. And yet they're perfectly one. There's a union there. And together, out of sheer joy, out of sheer love, what do they do? Out of sheer grace, they agree to create and they're building. And you see that in the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's creation. They're just building together out of the sheer joy and love. They say, and then they say, let's make man in our image. In other words, what we're going to do is we're going to widen the circle. We're going to expand the circle of joy and love and friendship and partnership and oneness. Not because he was lonely, not because there's some void in his life, but out of a fullness of joy and love and partnership. It was overflowing, and they're bursting in their overflowing joy and love and grace. And you see that joy in creation. Day one, he creates. At the end, it was good. Day two, he creates. At the end, it was good. Day three, day four, day five, day six. At the end of creation, he looks back on everything that is created, and he says, it was very good. He's just bursting with joy. That's the benediction, the good word. 
We were made to reflect that kind of love, that kind of joy, and it only happens in community. Why? The best way to reflect and bear God's image is to reflect rich, healthy, godly community. But then we're going to skip ahead to this part of the passage where that Apostle Paul was referring to when he was looking at Ephesians, when he was writing Ephesians chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, remember, day one, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Over and over, he said, it was good, it was good. It was very good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and God says, it was not good. It is not good for what? For man, for the man to be alone. Now think about this. This is the Garden of Eden. This is paradise. Everything was perfect. And yet God says, and he utters the first malediction. It is not good. Why? Because of Adam's aloneness. That aloneness doesn't reflect the image of God. He needs a a community. He needs friendship. He needs partnership. He needs intimacy. He needs to demonstrate and be, he was created for oneness in, in the fullest sense. By the way, friends, this is why it's so important to be intimately connected to the church today. It's so important to be connected to the church body in order for you to mature. Single friends, a lot of you have come to Metro, and, you, and what did you say? You said this. You said, I'm going to start fresh. I really want to take my, my life uh, seriously. I want to grow spiritually. But then what happens? You make friends in the church. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a glorious thing. But then what happens? It's also the culprit, one of the greatest culprits, relationships that kills that desire to grow. Why? And it's because spiritual maturity can, can either be, uh, spiritual maturity can, can either uh, uh, suffer, it's either because you don't have any gospel community or because it's not a healthy community. And think about this. If you're not cultivating healthy friendships, it's very, very difficult then to transition and cultivate a healthy marriage automatically because healthy community enables the possibility it's going to build the skills over a course of time where you sustain over the course of years and years you're building something the resources to develop lasting intimate friendships that reflect the beauty of God and marriage is we said the most intimate the most lasting look at the trinity the father the son the holy spirit they're in constant submission to one another The son is submitting to the father. The father loves and glorifies the son. The son is honoring and sending the spirit. This is the perfect example. Dr. Keller, uh, Tim Keller, he says that uh, it's almost like a cosmic dance that's taking place. The father submitting to the son. Son submitting to the father. Father submitting to the spirit. Spirit submitting to the son. And there's this dance that's going on. It's the perfect example of the type of submission in our world today. We're always trying to outdo one another. And here, they're submitting to one another. That is a healthy, godly community. This is the perfect example of the type of submission that, that enables each other. So when God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for Adam. He's not talking about some sideshow. He's not talking about some silent voice. The actual Hebrew word there for helper, azer, is similar to, it's only referred to a woman and to God in the Old Testament. In the Trinity, each of the members of the Trinity, they enable each other to experience, to reach their fullest potential. And when you do that in marriage, when you say, because of you, I'm able to reach my fullest potential. 
We're enabling one another to become better image bearers of God. That's the purpose. Now, secondly, how do you practice that? In Genesis chapter 2, what happens? In verse 21, God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made women from the rib that he, was, that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, in verse 23, Adam meets Eve, and what does he say? This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What's Adam saying there? I finally found that one person who gets me. So much that she's a part of me. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. Without you, I'm not whole. Without you, I'm not complete. Because I know you, I know myself. Even better, now I know, I know my fullest potential. I'm enabled. I know who I am. I know why I'm here, why I'm created. In, Gen- in verse 25, they are both naked and they know no shame. In other words, there's this deep oneness of the soul without shame on the inside, even though they're naked on the outside. And so the first practice is a oneness that empowers, a oneness that enables. Verse 31, the apostle Paul it refers to this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He's referring to this passage uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, For this reason, then, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He will leave his father and mother and to be united, to cleave with his wife. Oneness. How intimate is this oneness? To cleave. It's a very technical term. It's a covenantal term. That means I'm glued to you. I'm bound to you. I'm completely attached in my life to you. It's this love-binding, legally-bound relationship. We were designed for this. And so to know your spouse is to say this, that now that I know you, I know myself, and I know God even better. And so I need you. It's a lifeline for me. I will never let you go. It's a public promise that you're making. It's a legal promise that you're making. It's covenantal. What you're saying is, if I break this, may my life be broken apart, may be torn to pieces. So when Adam meets Eve, what does he say? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. To be, for that to be torn, literally, your heart is broken, torn apart. It's the first poem that he utters in world history. The first poem, the first song in world history. And it was about marriage. Oneness. It's exclusive. This is bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. We're bound together. And so I'm going to serve you the way Jesus served the church. Why did Jesus do that? The Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 5, verse 26 to 27, to make the church holy, cleansing her, to present her, to present the church as radiant, In marriage, what you're saying is to know you, to see you is to see myself. To know you is to know myself. So I see our future radiance, our future brilliance, that potential. I see it. There's a vision of that. In marriage, you're led by a vision vision of that person's future radiance. How God is shaping your spouse to become a better image bearer through you. So secondly, what that means is, verse 26, you're going to cleanse each other. Thirdly, verse 28 and 29, you're going to feed, you're going to care, you're going to cherish each other as you would your own body. To cleanse, we're going to break this down a little bit, to cleanse, it's a metaphor. You're addressing the sinfulness and the flaws and the brokenness because you can only fully clean somebody if you're fully naked with them, without shame. And so 
He's not really talking about physical nakedness. It's a metaphor, a metaphor for vulnerability, openness. By the way, physical nakedness is just the result. It's just a consequence. A lot of us in our modern age, we think of marriage, and it's all about this license towards just physical intimacy, and that's a big part of marriage. But the thing is, that's the consequence of the most intimate relationship where two people are bound together by a legal promise. Single friends, single friends, this is why the Bible says we're never to be naked physically with somebody until you're absolutely vulnerable and you've opened yourself up in every way, whether it's emotionally and socially, financially, spiritually, and ultimately legally, in every way you are saying, I am bound to you. Physical oneness, physical nakedness is just the final result of having laid everything bare in front of that one person together. What that means is then you're committed to, to learn to speak truth to one another. See, a good friend, a good friend is going to speak into you because they absolutely can't stand to see how your pride or your anger or your anxiety or your foolishness is holding you back. I mean, they just, they just can't bear to see that. You can't see it, but they can see that. But a true friend, uh, what they'll do is they'll speak into you, but they can only say so much because they've never signed a legally binding, a love-binding covenant with you. And so if they push too hard, you may walk away. You may leave, no matter how foolish that may be. But spouses literally have a license to push. And so Adam says, this is bone of my bone. You complete me. And so if your spouse is joyful, you are joyful. But if your spouse is selfish, if your spouse is fearful, if your spouse is proud or angry or anxious, then you are fearful and selfish, and proud, and angry, and anxious. You're one. And so, if a person, your spouse is selfish, you're going to teach them to surrender their selfishness. If they're fearful, you're going to help to undergird them with courage. But pastor, I'm not used to these types of conversations. It's uncomfortable for me. Things are really good right now between us. I don't want to stir the pot. Verses 26 to 27. Ephesians 5, 26 to 27, why do you cleanse? Real love says, I'm committed to your future glory, to that future radiance, that future joy, and we're going to get there together. It hurts me to see you in sin. So when you don't argue about that, when you don't fight about that for your spouse's holiness, you're sacrificing their future brilliance for your present comfort. You see that? Jesus saved us from our sins, but marriage, in a sense, is going to help us do away with them by keeping them front and center. You'll never be able to escape because you will never be able to escape your spouse. You can never ignore your spouse. Things that you've been ignoring in your life for a lifetime are now going to be front and center. You cannot escape it. All all of us, we have these these nagging sins. They're powerful. I mean, they're going to just wreak havoc in our lives. And we often say, oh, she is my biggest problem. He is my biggest problem. No, because if you're saying that, you're really not applying. You're running from this passage because the biggest problem in your life, the biggest problem in your marriage is you. So to cherish your spouse, to feed and to care for your spouse is to serve them, 
to nurture your relationship, to care for that relationship, to demonstrate gratitude for them over and over and over, bursting with the same love and joy that the Father had in the context of community and building creation. You see that? You're thinking about them, you're reflecting on them and how committed they are to you, the risks that they have taken for you, and they're never going to leave you. And so the more you serve them, there's growth. There's growth in your relationship. And you're going to find that that service and that labor, your love increases even more because you're bound to them. Now, of course, that means if they're sick, you're sick. If they're broken and if they're hurting, you're broken and you're hurting. If they're joyful, you're joyful. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Think about that. In ancient times, your family, your father and mother, that was your life. That gave you your name, your reputation, your status, your identity. You were bound to your family. It was powerful. But the Apostle Paul is saying now, you were bound to your spouse, and that's even more powerful. More powerful than that. Think about the thing that is the most important thing in your life before you got married. What power at one point you felt that you experienced by having that thing. And the Apostle Paul says your marriage is even more powerful than that, more influential than that. In many ways, and that's why we said last week it's dangerous. It can be idolatrous. You can, you can actually cling to it as your life. But nevertheless, marriage has to be a priority. So verse 29 the Apostle Paul says, you have to feed, you have to care for your spouse. Verse 31, you've got to leave your family, your father and mother, and cleave to be with your spouse. Nurture your marriage. Pay attention to its dangers, the sins, the traps that you both easily fall into, and reflect the image of God as a couple. It's the single most shaping influence, the most beautiful relationship that you will have in your life. But what poisons it? What poisons image-bearing? Imagine you buy a new car. Now that you own this car, you say, well, this is my car. I'm going to do whatever I want with it. I'm going to run it to the ground. I'm not going to clean it. I'm not going to give it an oil change. It's just going to have to buck up and just go with me. I'm not going to feed it. I'm, going to, I'm not going to put gas in it. I'm going to put sugar in it. I'm going to do whatever I want with this car. Who cares about this manual, this owner's manual? Those rules are so restrictive. This is my car. That finely tuned machine, you're going to kill that machine. Why? Because you're not the designer. You didn't write that manual. You're not the creator of that, of that car. You are stewarding. You are responsible for that car. That car is operating on the design of the creator. Think about your body. You go to your doctor, and the doctor says, look, I'm going to give it to you straight. <clears throat> I really need you to eat more leafy greens. I really need you to go on a low-carb diet. I really need you to eat less sugars. I really, your A1Cs are creeping up. I, I really need you to go on a non-fat diet. Some of you are convicted by this, right? You would never say, well, who are you to tell me how to live my life? I mean, that's, that's like intrusive. Whoa, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. Who are you to intrude or tell me how to live my life? You would never say that. Why? Because you know that we're all living on borrowed time. And the doctor knows, a doctor, an expert knows what's going to ruin your body and what's going to help to preserve and steward your body. In the same way, you, were, you never designed marriage. You didn't write the book on marriage. So when you enter into a marriage, what kills it? What's going to poison the marriage? 
sin. When you think it's yours to do whatever you want with it, your selfishness. Sin is, in a sense, sin is anything that threatens or goes against the design of God in marriage, well, in life for that matter. When you disregard the purpose of marriage in your life to become better image bearers, and you just want to uh, bear your own image, or you want to maintain or sustain your own uh, life, that's going to ruin your life, but it's going to ruin your marriage. Wives, the purpose of marriage is not to live just to support your spouse and become a sideshow, a side piece, a silent voice, just supporting and grinding for your spouse. Real biblical support and true biblical femininity, for that matter, is to become an empowerer and a helper the way God refers to himself in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, for that matter, in the New Testament. It's to enable your spouse, your children, to become a better image bearer of God. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do you get over your selfishness? I mean, you try and try in your heart. You, you fight and you argue and you, and you think you have it right and then you go, you slip right back into it. How do we do that? Where's the power to live like this? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the Apostle Paul, he's reflecting on the ways that the husband and the wife, they practice oneness. And he goes on this beautiful discourse that we looked at last week. So from verse 31, I mean, for verse 21, he goes all the way down and, and, as, and he's mounting about the role of the wife and the role of the husband and how, and, and he starts to crescendo and as he's reflecting on this oneness and each time he undergirds it, he says, just as Jesus did for the church, just as Jesus did for the church. Over and over you see that he's reflecting on this and he's reflecting about Jesus' love and his service for the, for the church, verse 32, he just bursts into wonder. And he says, this is a profound mystery. He stops and he says, this is a mystery. But now he's just left the farm. He says, I'm talking about Christ and his church. Why? Because when Adam met Eve, I mean, Adam, he sang. But then the next chapter, their love for each other, that partnership that, that companionship, that relationship, it amplified their desire to be by themselves on their own, doing their own thing, and to own and control their own lives. Their sin and their selfishness poisoned their image bearing. So we can't look to Adam as a model. You got to look to a greater Adam. You got to look at a greater image of God. You got to look at the ultimate image of God. And so the author of Hebrews, he says this, Jesus Christ, we read this in our, call to, uh, in our, in our uh, word of encouragement today, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What does that mean? Marriage is designed with a vision of what? Your future glory, that future radiance, that brilliance, a future image of God that is perfect, and Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus Christ is the ultimate radiance. He is the Shekinah glory of God. He is the brilliance of God. When God led Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, through the wilderness, how did he lead them? With a radiant cloud and a radiant fire. It was a pillar of fire and a glory cloud that represented God's power and his wisdom and his love. And the author of Hebrews says now in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is that radiance. He is that brilliance. 
Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. There is union there. He affirms that. God the Father says, this is my son. There is my son whom I love. And then he says, listen to him. And so you see the Father submitting to the Son, the Son submitting to the Father. This is that cosmic dance. But then you fast forward to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is on the verge of his death. And he's staring into that ultimate abyss of suffering that he would endure as a penalty for the sins of his people, his bride, And it's just overwhelming him, and he's praying, and he says what? Father, take this cup from me. He's referring to the cup of God's wrath, but then he says, not my will, yours be done. In other words, he says, I am committed and submissive to you. First and foremost, I'm not just risking my life, and it's not at the risk of my life, but I'm giving up my life. I'm sacrificing my life. Look at the vulnerability of Jesus. Look at the submission of Jesus. He left the Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left the Father. He left the throne, and he emptied himself. Why? He left his Father to leave his family. We said that's death. In those ancient times, that meant death. But Jesus Christ, he left the Father to be united to his wife. We are his bride. And why? To present us a radiant church. We would receive the radiance. We would receive the brilliance. And so when Jesus Christ, when the king came down, he's saying, I'm committed to you. I'm submitting to you. I'm making myself wholly vulnerable to you. So vulnerable he came as a baby. Killable. And on the cross, what do you see? Do you see the brilliance? Do you see the radiance? No, It was darkness on the cross. And Jesus' body became broken. Why? You become what you behold. Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, because he was bound to us. Union. We were broken, so he became broken. We were dead in sin, so he died. And so, because he lost the father, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I've truly left the father. I'm forsaken. I'm alienated. I'm isolated. I'm suffering the aloneness, the brokenness of aloneness, the rejection of aloneness. And because he lost the father, because he lost his family, he lost his name and his status and identity, all of that. Why? Jesus didn't just, he lost the father so we could be reconciled to the father. Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was out. He was cast out. Why? So we would be brought in. He lost the name and the status and the identity. Why? So that we would have his name. We would bear his image. And so we would have his name and his identity and his status. And because he lives, we live. We're married. We're bound. There's union. There is the power to give up and surrender your selfishness. You see, when you're just looking at it as peers, one-on-one, it's easy to be like, well, you're terrible at this. I'm so much better. It's easy to do that. Our selfishness is actually doing that in us, constantly judging and constantly comparing. 
when you, it's because you're looking too low and you're aiming too low. When you, the author of Hebrews says, you fix your eyes on Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ and he has made us his bride, oh, there's the radiance that we should be seeking. There's the brilliance and the beauty. It's like, then why would you take me in? The gospel humbles you. The gospel humbles you. And yet, rather than being afraid to take those next steps, you're able to be confidently taking those next steps. Why? Because you will never go so far that God's grip of grace will ever be loosened on you. And when you have two people who are just coming together in shambles sometimes, just broken and humble, and they come together and they say, we've been called together to complete one another. God the Father is in there. The Holy Spirit is working in that, shaping you, influencing you to build and recreate oneness in you in a beautiful way that reflects the glory of God. There's the power to feed and to cherish and to care for your spouse outside of yourself. There's the power to leave. I mean, we are, if I look around, family is a big part of your lives. But there are some hurts in the family, brokennesses in the family, and just things that may be beautiful about your family, but in many ways you have to leave that to be united, to pursue an ultimate oneness, a greater oneness, a deeper oneness, cleansing and feeding your spouse to become a better image bearer of God. There's the power. There's the radiance that we should be seeking. Never take your eyes off of it. Fix your eyes on that. Single friends, if that's the purpose of marriage, that's going to begin right now here with you. I mean, if you don't care for that today, in your relationships, in your friendships, you're going to just constantly pursue lesser radiance, lesser glories alone, ultimately with your spouse tomorrow. Now, if you're married, you need to practice this vulnerability, opening yourself up with one another, sacrificially forgiving one another with generosity, charitableness, kindness. You got to do that now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed to his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That's the purpose. Let's pray together.